Thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much to uh, Alex Mortimer, Andrew Blick, and uh, to David Law for inviting me to speak to you today. Over the next 20 minutes or so, I try to do two things, and thereby perform quite a stretch. I was asked to contribute a paper about refugee policy to a panel titled Moments of Crisis. I will therefore say something about that, about so-called refugee crises. But I also want to make some general observations about the possible benefits and pitfalls of historians' interventions in debates about public policy. These observations are informed by my own experience over the past 17 years of contributing to public debates about refugee and asylum seeker policy in Australia and of talking to policymakers and to refugee advocates. We are witnessing a paradigm change, said the then UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, in June 2015. An unchecked slide into an era in which the scale of forced migration, uh, uh, of global forced displacement, as well as the response required, is now clearly dwarfing anything seen before. At the same time, in Europe, journalists, policymakers, and public commentators spoke of an unprecedented European refugee crisis. In Australia, the crisis had been diagnosed as early as 2010, when record numbers of people seeking protection arrived in Australia uh, or in Australian waters. In the United States, a major migration crisis was said to have developed in 2014, when tens of thousands of unaccompanied minors from Central America's Northern Triangle crossed the Mexican-US border. The UNHCR is dependent on government contributions and individual donations. Often, it cannot be sure how its next budget will be funded. It is therefore no wonder that Guterres highlighted the unprecedented scale of forced migration. At least, he identified a global problem. Governments in Europe, the US, and Australia took a parochial view. For them, the so-called refugee crisis was played out on Greek beaches and in overcrowded emergency shelters in Germany, in El Paso, and on Christmas Island, respectively, rather than in, say, Jordanian refugee camps on the streets of San Salvador or in Hazara villages in Afghanistan. Refugees themselves were perceived to be the problem, and their arrival supposedly precipitated a crisis. Policymakers were called upon to address the problem and to respond to the crisis. Obviously, inaction was not an option. Crisis management, however successful, only served to highlight government's failure to reclaim the initiative. Australia's former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, who's already been mentioned today, who had spent years discursively confecting a crisis of Australian sovereignty, knew best what was warranted. Speaking two years ago of the existential challenge posed by about too many that are coming, not with gratitude, but with grievance and with the insistence that Europe should make way for them, among them soldiers of the Caliphate bent on mayhem, he said, this crisis can't be managed, it has to be resolved. Abbott recommended that Europe's leaders emulate the policies of his government. Quote, people intercepted in the Mediterranean have to be returned to their starting point 
effective border protection is not for the squeamish, she said, but it is absolutely necessary to save lives and to preserve nations. In the past two years, we have seen how the United States, the European Union, and even individual European governments have followed Australia's lead, at least in part. We have seen how they have attempted to resolve the alleged problem and put an end to the perceived crisis by making their borders more impenetrable for people seeking protection, by deporting irregular migrants, and by tightening the rules that govern the granting of asylum. It is not too difficult to, to critique this talk of crises and unprecedented challenges. I already mentioned one possible avenue of such a critique. The idea that Europe, Australia, and North America are in the grip of an unprecedented crisis betrays a parochial focus on the particular interests of the global north. Countries like the Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Pakistan, Iran, and Kenya rather than the United States, Australia, Germany, or Italy, have been most affected by forced displacement. And in the case of Australia, the talk of unprecedented numbers of asylum seekers also fails to recognize that even in comparison with other industrialized countries, uh, the burden carried by Australia has been light. In 2013, 20,857 asylum seekers arrived in Australia by boat, more than in any other year, but on a per capita basis, that's about 1 20th of the number of asylum seekers accommodated by Sweden in 2015. The second avenue of critique is similarly obvious. By identifying some developments as a crisis, governments have been able to deflect attention from other arguably more serious developments, climate change, uh, most of all, but also the increase of precarious forms of employment as a result of globalization. Political leaders such as Abbott have been surprisingly candid in this regard. In the speech that I quoted earlier, Abbott told his European audience, quote, acknowledging people's concerns about uncontrolled immigration should help to build trust on other changes especially the economic ones that have to be accommodated. Globalization has made most people richer, but it's made some people poorer, and it's brought some of the problems of the third world into the cities of Europe. We can't be indifferent to people's anxieties when asking them to endure short-term pain for long-term collective gain. Stand guard on your borders, and you, s and you ease so much of the anxiety that now grips this great continent. The third avenue of critique would be to critically interrogate the memories and histories that inform the talk of unprecedented crises and record numbers of displaced people. And that's where historians could come in. Historians could point out that the talk about unprecedented crises is misleading. There were more displaced people in the 1940s in absolute numbers than in 2018. The United States was able to accommodate far more people seeking asylum during the Marielle Boatlift in 1980 than it did in 2014. In the Australian case, it is true that 20,857 represents the largest number of people arriving by boat and seeking Australia's protection in a calendar year. But Australia had been able to accommodate far more refugees in earlier times. 
in the late 1940s when Australia's population was less than a third of its population in 2013 and its economy was not nearly as uh, doing as well as it uh, was in 2013, Australia resettled more than 100,000 refugees uh, within a 12-month period. Historians could therefore debunk some of the myths that inform the talk of crises and record numbers, but they can de do far more than that. They can show how the discourse of policymakers and others contributing to public debate about issues of forced migration draws on and references particular histories and particular memories. In Australia, for example, Tony Abbott's Stop the Boats campaign needs to be understood in the context of a much earlier discourse about the so-called yellow peril, the uncontrolled immigration of Chinese. Historians can show how policy and public responses to refugees sometimes reenact earlier responses or at best or, or at least memories of such responses. In Germany, for example, the supposedly unprecedented uh, scenes that played out at German railway stations in September 2015, when Germans enthusiastically welcomed Syrian refugees arriving from Hungary, closely resembled scenes in September 1989, when West Germans welcomed East Germans arriving by train from Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Historians can also show how amnesia and the lack of relevant historical narratives are as important as memory and histories in legitimizing interpretations of and responses to the present. So here comes the stretch. There is a wide range of reasons that compel historians to be interested in refugee issues. By comparison, public interest in the history of forced migration tends to be prompted by the idea that history has either or both of two functions, to provide lessons and or to make sense of the present. Those looking for lessons expect historians to tell them about possible courses of action that ought to be avoided because similar courses of action prove to be harmful or uh, were successful in earlier times, uh, proved to be beneficial or were successful in earlier times. Such expectations are informed by the assumption that the past and the present are sufficiently similar to simply transfer insights gained by studying the former to the latter. Historians are partly to blame for this misconception. In order for their work to be considered socially useful, some of them refer to the past as if it were a repository of precedents. The search for lessons is also guided by the illusion that human beings would be inclined to make rational decisions based on precedent if only they knew about, enough about the past. Some historians also claim that their discipline allows them to situate the present on a linear trajectory that reaches from the past to the future. Take, for example, the webpage of an Australian university's history program which tells prospective students that, quote, historical studies tells us where we came from, who we are, and where we are heading. Or take the eminent social historian Peter Stearns, who in a 1989 document published on the website of the American Historical Association says, quote, 
History helps us understand change and how the society we live in came to be. The past causes the present and so the future. In an ideal world, policymakers would probably seek the input of historians. While the past is no repository of precedents, it is of course possible to learn from past experience. But we are not living in an ideal world. At least in my experience, Australian policymakers have shown little interest in uh, learning about previous refugee, asylum and migration policies and practices when formulating new policies and developing new practices. They are less, less averse to histories that make sense of the present by explaining how the society we live in came to be. Narratives that supposedly tell us where we came from and who we are are often used to shore up particular policies and practices in the present. The more coherent and seamless the narratives are, the better they are suited for such a purpose. In Australia, the narrative that more than any other has been employed to buttress current responses to refugees and asylum seekers features a traditionally generous and compassionate society. That narrative is often used to suggest that current policies and practices ought to be seen as yet another instantiation of generosity and compassion, as if the break with a supposedly long-established tradition were inconceivable, or, alternatively, to depict the present as an aberration, as something that could be easily corrected. In a book that was commissioned as an intervention in public policy debate, I critiqued the idea that Australia has been traditionally generous when responding to refugees and asylum seekers without, however, trying to suggest that the grand narrative about Australia's generosity needs to be replaced by one about Australian racism, fear of the other, or lack of hospitality. Here I would like to take a different tack and suggest that historians could offer accounts that have the potential to disrupt grand narratives which tell us where we came from, who we are, and where we are heading. Such accounts are useless in that they don't provide ready-made lessons for the present. The, to quote uh, something that came up in yesterday's discussion, they have no retail value. But they have the potential to unsettle views of the past and the present that are indebted to a notion of history whereby past, present, and future are on a linear trajectory, and we should assume that there is an inexorable progression along that trajectory. The past becomes the present becomes the future variety of history, privileges pasts that can be seen to form the nucleus of the present. Not only does such history pay scant attention to presumed dead ends of history, it is often also content with truncated genealogies that ostensibly suffice to establish how the present came into being. At the end of the day, a history that does only that risks becoming an apology of the present. A history that does only that makes it harder for us to envisage futures that are not already contained in the present. Some pasts are ostensibly inconsequential in that they did not turn into the present, but these dead ends, once rendered as history, 
might regain some currency. Such accounts are not attempts to set the record straight, although they may offer interpretations that are more nuanced than those that fit easily into the past becomes the present becomes the future narrative. Not least, Australia's history wars taught me that a dispute over what happened based on an interpretation of historical evidence may well be counterproductive, <coughs> unless it is accompanied by a discussion about what history is, how it produces truth effects, what it is for, who benefits from it, and why it is done. When contributing to a discussion about public policy, historians may want to reflect on how they respond to public expectations about the usefulness of their craft. Are they perhaps too readily drawing lessons, explaining the present, or writing accounts that could easily be slotted into patriotic narratives of the nation? Personally, I wish that disputes over what happened were accompanied by the search for a historical practice that does not shore up the present but which produces histories that are unsettling, disrupting notions of a seamless progression from the status quo ante to the status quo. Such histories may even allow for futures uh, that have precedents but which do not have an unbroken lineage. Such histories may allow for uh, futures that I imagined that are not yet contained in the present and which are attentive to pasts that did not culminate in the present. Admittedly, the desire to imagine such futures may be informed by a sense of emergency, by the sense that we live in a state of crisis, albeit one that has little in common with the crisis conjured by Tony Abbott and others. While Abbott's idea of a crisis assumes that the present is a um, radical departure from the past to which we ought to return, the sense of emergency I have in mind is informed by the idea that the future must not endlessly reproduce the present. Thank you very much. And, uh...